Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This summer, Congress finds itself once again driving full speed toward the highway cliff, the moment when our transportation law expires and Washington suddenly can't meet its promises to help states build highways, fix their bridges, and keep the nation's cars and trucks moving. That's Politico's introduction to the latest issue of their new magazine, The Agenda. The issue is devoted to transportation issues. And in the second half of the program, I'll be talking with Michael Grunewald, senior staff writer for Politico, editor-at-large of the agenda. We'll talk about Milwaukee's expensive new interchanges, roads versus public transit, new roads versus repairing old ones, the gas tax, potential new ways to fund transportation, other topics. But we begin with the possible future of transportation. We're going to be talking with Politico contributor Bo Dang and her article in this issue is titled, When Do We Get Hover Cars? We'll uh, talk about minicopters, driverless pods, vacuum tubes, and super trains. Boer Deng is a journalist based in Washington, D.C. Her work has appeared in The Economist, Nature, Slate, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the New Republic Online, among other publications. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So among other things, you, you write about technology, sort of futuristic elements. That you've, you've written about a broad range of things, I understand. I have done, yes. Um, and one of the articles, uh, which I found on, linked over from your website, Autonomous Robots, and hopefully if we have time we'll get to talking about that. That's pretty cool. Um, but I guess the, the impulse here, and, and you've mostly drawn ideas, I guess that the, the advances are coming in Europe and other countries, not in the U.S. The impulse, I guess, is to get out of the traffic jams. That's right, yeah. Um, I, I think as you, you probably have experienced yourself um, and have, have probably seen a lot of us uh, spend many hours being stuck in traffic. Um, in America, the average American spends something like 38 hours um, a year stuck in traffic jams. In some places, it's even worse. In, in Washington, D.C., it's something like 67 hours, which is <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and in, in Europe, it's something like 50 hours. Um, and, and so there are a lot of uh, projects to, to sort of try and alleviate that. Um, and, and among those ideas are things like flying cars, which we've all been <laughs> dreaming about having, uh, and then uh, sort of ways to, to make urban traffic uh, a little easier on, on all of us. Well, let's uh, let's start with this flight of fancy, pun intended, uh, minicopters. Uh, there are actual companies working on this. That's right. Yeah, and there's several of them, uh, both American and, and European. Um, in fact, there's a, a European firm called Pow V um, that actually has a prototype um, that debuted, I think, back in 2014. Uh, which if you are a very rich man, uh, you can <laughs> go and buy one of these for, for a couple hundred thousand dollars or 180,000 euros, I think, was, uh, was the debut sticker price. Um, but there are also um, things that you have to consider when it comes to actually making personal flying vehicles, as they're called, uh, something that might be an actual sort of mass transit uh, solution uh, once prices do come down, which which is, tends to be the case hmm. with um, all sorts of new technology. Um, and and what's interesting is that it, the Europeans seem to be quite quite uh, quite keen on figuring out how to actually do that. And recently uh, wrapped up a study um, that looks at sort of what does it take to make that practical. Um, and they sort of put people in flight simulators and um, ask them what they liked and didn't like and. Uh, 
have them sort of uh, pretend to fly, you know, different types of uh, uh, different types of, of um, setups to, to see what what it would take to get sort of a lay person like like you and me to be able to to have a a, a mini copter for ourselves uh, <laughs> that we could that we could use to avoid traffic. Um, there's quite a ways to go, mm-hmm. uh, but still, I, I think sort of looking at the the, the utility aspect of it, uh, figuring out what actually is practical versus not, is, is kind of a, an important step that people tend to tend to forget because we tend to focus on sort of the, the cool new prototypes mm-hmm. that, that are coming up. Um, well, I was, I was just thinking I, I was in traffic the other day, and there was one particular individual who was weaving in and out unnecessarily, and I guess that same guy would be in the next minicopter over, so you, you, wouldn't, eliminate the, <laughs> you wouldn't eliminate that pro- problem. Right, so you gotta you gotta be careful, and and you know if if it's actually gonna actually be a practical thing, um, one thing you would have to think about is also sort of what would be the traffic rules. Would we you know have to make sure people didn't didn't do that and, and sort of collide into each other? Would we have to have codes for figuring out uh, who's next to us or above us or, or below us? And um, so so a lot of you know a lot of issues still to be thought about um, besides the sort of machines that are being built. And of course, there's, uh, unlike cars, there's takeoff and landing. And uh, is the thought there to automate that as much as possible? What what is the thinking for, you know, people who are used to driving cars, but not used to taking off and landing and actual flying? Right. So that's actually one of the things that these researchers at the Max Planck Institute, um, who, who headed the study that I mentioned, uh, said, said was one of the most challenging things. Is you know, if if there, if flying cars are ever going to be successful, you have to have a system where uh, users can can take off and land easily, and you have to be able to do it without a, a lot of runway. You know, none of us have sort of miles and miles of driveway for us to <laughs> take off from. Um, and and the answer is um, that that really people don't know. I mean, the technology simply isn't there yet to figure out how to how to best do this. And but it'd be nice if it could be automated. Um, I think that would make it simpler for for operators. But but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right that takeoff and landing is one of the big considerations that sort of remains to remains to be seen where that goes. And of course, you could you could see this as a, a maybe a next logical step where you know we're looking at driverless cars and there's a whole host of issues there but if if that were perfected then you know you could you could maybe see a, a next step in, in automated flying machines yeah uh, and certainly in commercial aircraft uh, there's already a lot of automation uh, but then it's a slightly different setup uh, you've got you know lots of runway and sort of airports and all sorts of uh, very highly regulated regimens for it um for for individuals flying cars, I, I think that'd be a bit trickier. Yeah, it, it would be. Now, are there? Uh, you know, could I, if I were very rich, could I go and buy one of these things right right now? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. there there is a vehicle that's available in Europe from a, a Dutch company. Um, there are American firms as well, um, as well as another you know several European firms that are sort of trying to to get this started and. And even besides uh, sort of mini copters, uh, if you were also very rich and lived in Sao Paulo, um, you could hire your own helicopter quite easily, uh, mm-hmm. as, as I learned. Um, Sao Paulo apparently has the largest fl- largest fleet of, of helicopters, um, and make, they make some 700 journeys across the city 
every day. So, so even though we think of sort of personal mini copters and flying around the city to avoid traffic as, as something quite novel, um, there there already exists some precedence for it, um, though, though not so much in, in the form of sort of private uh, car flying car uh, things that we could own ourselves. Um, you know, it's one of those things where if you're rich, you can pretty much do anything. Mm-hmm. Now, is that because Sao Paulo's traffic is really bad? Is that, yeah, is that that's, driving that that's market? Yeah, exactly. That's certainly one of the reasons. Um, it's also a safety issue um, in a lot of the developing world. If mm-hmm. you're driving, there tend to be much uh, less well-regulated traffic, uh, a lot of accidents, roads are in poor condition. Um, so, so people sort of have looked for alternatives, and if you have the means to do so... Um, Flying around on a helicopter, I suppose, makes makes sense. So there's a, a I guess, uh, points out perhaps a, a danger, a downside uh, for advances in technology, the have-nots sort of get left behind. Just you know, so Paulo, if you can't afford the helicopter, you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck in traffic. That's right. Yeah, and and just like the rest of us, um, <laughs> stuck in traffic, driving around. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with Bo Deng, uh, contributing. Uh, uh, author to uh, Politico's uh, new uh, magazines called The Agenda, and the the issue, latest issue is on transportation issues. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with Michael Grunwald. We'll talk about uh, public transit and roads, uh, Milwaukee's expensive new interchanges, uh, the gas tax, and other transportation issues. Right now, we're talking about a possible future of transportation. You're welcome to join the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I'd like to uh, uh, jump to uh, something you treat in your article, Bordeng, uh, the super trains. And this is something, this is not so futuristic that this that it's not happening. Uh, you know, the Acela Express in the eastern U.S. gets up to 160 miles per hour at its, its best, but there are some trains that are that are really pushing the limits. Uh, yes, uh, and indeed, uh, a lot of those are uh, being developed and, and happening in, in East Asia. In fact, I, I had the privilege of, of writing one of them. I was, uh, I was in China a few months ago, and it's, it's amazing. You can ride these trains that just run on time and go super fast, and <laughs> something that I, I think a lot of people here in the States wished that they had, but um, the fastest train uh, that's actually had passengers on it uh, is actually the Shanghai Magnetic Levitation Train. It travels at 268 miles per hour. Uh, You can, you know, get from Shanghai to Nanjing, which are sort of two cities that are are quite close, uh, extremely quickly. Um, It's it's quite a nice experience. The seats are quite roomy, actually. um, and it's a, there's a bit of a race uh, for you know the, which train, which country will have the fastest train um, between China and and Japan. Um, the fastest maglev train, as they're called, is actually a, a Japanese train. Um, it didn't carry any passengers, but it broke the record for the fastest speeds at 374 miles an hour. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and wow. in Japan, yeah, in Japan, uh, trains have been sort of a symbol of mater- modernity for a long time. And uh, Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, is always sort of plugging it when he's uh, traveling abroad. He mentioned it when he was visiting uh, the states a couple months ago. 
Um, but it's a real sort of point of, you know, point of, of I think, national pride for them uh, and a bit of a, a competition going on there. Um, there are, of course, also very quick trains in, in Europe. Um, in fact, the French government has, I think, just approved a new uh, high-speed uh, high train in the last couple months. Um, you know, Germany has very fast trains, even Spain. Um, so, so sort of, you know, something that's happening all over the world. And sadly, we we're a little bit behind there with with our with our Cello Express. Hmm. And this, I could see, would be you just want to cut down the travel time. It wouldn't necessarily be a, a traffic jam thing. I could think, you know, if you want to get from Salt Lake City to Reno, you'd like to eliminate all that, uh, you know. Uh, some would say boring, you know, straight ahead desert travel. Right. Cut, yeah. Cut yeah. That and down. I think it's yeah. It's also a slightly different problem than what we were talking about before. Um, you know, as you mentioned, with with urban commutes, uh, traffic jams are, are sort of a big thing that every, that gives everyone a headache. With long distance travel, um, you know, now many of us fly. You have to deal with sort of layovers and delays, and that can be a different kind of headache. And, and fast trains uh, certainly would be a, a solution to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the, uh, the train that was, uh, I guess, topped out at some 370 miles per hour in Japan didn't have passengers. Is that slated to have passengers in the near future? Um, I think that is the plan. Uh, I'm not actually sure, but I, I, I would imagine so. Um, it's sort of uh, the purpose of these trains is to be able to ferry passengers around rather than to carry freight. So, uh, so I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if we see passengers, uh, you know, being on there once they've tested it for safety and made sure that it's all everything's good to go. So, the train you rode on, what what was the experience like? I've I've wondered if it would be, you know, like a jet pilot, you know, would be some effects, <laughs> or is it just like riding in a regular train? Riding in a regular train, but it's quite it's quite nice. Um, the the train line that I, that I that I rode on, um, you know, out of Shanghai, it's it sort of connects several cities, and you get you know you you get there in sort of fifteen twenty minutes, and you can see a lot of the countryside. It didn't get up to the speeds uh, that that had been advertised for the fastest trains, but it was quite a quick journey, you'd be quite surprised, and certainly much faster than, than driving around in, in China. Um, so, so yeah, it's quite roomy, and uh, uh, no, no Wi-Fi, though, I don't think. Okay, okay that'll be uh, the next frontier. Uh, so, uh, that fast, uh, you say your trail didn't go that fast, but say the, you know, 300 miles plus, um, I suppose it'd be more like looking out the window of an airplane, be uh, the but but it'd be kind of a different thing because you're the 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 immediate proximate uh, things would be going by in a blur. Yeah, um, I think anyone who's sort of had the experience, even traveling um, on an, a solid train or traveling very quickly in a car, you can see uh, sort of the, the what's close to you going by very quickly in a blur. Uh, you get a bit dizzy looking, um, but then looking off uh, further into the distance, you get to see quite a lot of sort of beautiful landscape and you know sort of enjoy the view something you don't really get to do as much if you're if you're flying <laughs> uh, so uh, I would imagine the faster you go the worse an accident would be I don't know if you've ever they've ever had an accident in one of these super trains yeah so it's actually in the past few years especially um, it was quite a big problem um, in China uh, you would hear these reports of train derailments um, that 
you know, there were a lot of safety concerns, and and that's something that's certainly always sort of of present, um, particularly um, for the Chinese because they've sort of invested so quickly and heavily in infrastructure. Um, you know, there were several years, and, and still today, uh, some, a lot of problems with, with safety, a lot of concerns with safety. Um, you know, when I was there, and when I read this uh, train line from uh, out of Shanghai felt quite safe. You know, I didn't think there were any problems, but but yeah, but safety is always a concern. Um, and and I think if you've looked at the news or, or you know seen anything, any reports, um, they did have several sort of big derailments, and and um, you know I think officials are always sort of quite worried about that and and, and try to improve on it. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, you know, safety is a, is a big issue, and if, when you're going at such high speeds, uh, a collision, of course, is going to be much worse uh, than than it could be. Um, of course, we have problems here in the States as well with trains that are going at slower speeds. Um, I'm sure, as, as you know, there was a big derailment a few months ago um, on Amtrak, and, you know, that was quite a, quite a big deal and, and, and a, a bit of a scary and tragic thing. Um, but, but, you know, I think uh, improving safety, I think, is... is Sort of always a priority for, for any kind of transportation. You just joined us. We're talking about transportation on the program today. We're piggybacking on a very interesting uh, new issue of the agenda. That's the new online magazine from Politico.com. And in the second half of the program, we'll be talking with Michael Grunwald about some transportation issues, uh, interchanges, road construction, uh, new roads versus repairing old ones, roads versus public transit, the gas tax, and other uh, topics. We're talking right now with Bo Redang, a contributing writer to... Uh, to this issue um, about future of transportation. We have this comment uh, come in from Sean. By the way, you're welcome to join the program. Hope that you will with your thoughts, your questions and comments. The uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Here's what Sean says. Hey, Tom, with uh, all due respect to the guest and futuristic transportation solutions, the future of transportation is a technology that has been with us for over 100 years. Bicycles, more bicycle travel, since most auto trips are under two miles, can be the silver bullet to America's challenges of congestion, air pollution, carbon footprint, and obesity. Even conservative-leaning communities like Logan are starting to invest and plan for a future that includes more bicycle transportation. Thanks. That's uh, Sean. So... uh, Ordang, I think uh, that's 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 a good point. We uh, it's very cool to look at <laughs> these these uh, futuristic transportation issues, but a uh, very old technology can can help out a lot. Yeah, I think Sean is is very astute in pointing that out. Um, and there, even though bicycles have been around for a long time, there are actually uh, improvements to bicycles as well. Um, for example, electric bicycles are something that have really started to take off in in Europe. Um, but as, as Sean mentioned, a lot of journeys that you take on bicycles are really quite short. And that, um, you know, while that's sort of very helpful in, in a lot of places, it can be a bit difficult for sort of longer distance travel. So in a place like Texas or even Utah, um, where, you know, the distance, the average distance between your workplace and your home is sort of quite a lot longer than the average distance that people take on their bicycles, um, you can imagine that that there might be a bit of a challenge to 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 adopting you know bicycles as as the preferred mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I believe that I've got the figures here uh, that the sort of the average uh, 
the average distance an employee has to travel to get to work in, in downtown Houston, for example, is, is something like 21 miles, um, whereas the average American bicyclist commutes about 3.5 miles. Um, so on, on hot summer days or on dry days or cold days in Utah, um, I can imagine that being a bit of a barrier. Um, but, but I think, yeah, Sean, Sean is right that, that bicycle riding hasn't, in fact, gone up um, in the States as well as elsewhere. And um, it, it's certainly a very legitimate and, and promising form of, of transport. And, of course, some, you know, some nations, have, I'm thinking of Holland, has a whole bicycle culture. That's what people like Sean, I'm sure, would, would, would want us to move a little bit further toward. Uh, here's an email from Steve. He says, I don't know if this falls squarely into the conversation. Maybe it's a little bit like Sao Paulo. But there's a regular copter commuting business between Manhattan and the Hamptons. As you know, Manhattan is just west of Long Island. Uh, the Hamptons are on the eastern tip of the island, which is 120 miles long. As you travel east, once you cross the canal connecting uh, Shinnecock Bay with uh, Peconic Bay, you've uh, just uh, you've got just one east-west road carrying all the Hamptons' vehicular traffic in both directions all summer long. You talk about slow-moving traffic, so the people who can afford to, and there are a lot of rich people who live in Manhattan and some are in the Hamptons, commute by helicopter. That's uh, Steve. So there's another example, I guess, here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, dare to dream. Perhaps one day one of us can, uh, or, or both of us, can take that trip. Right. Um, so uh, I want to get to, before we just have a couple minutes left with uh, with boarding, um, this is uh, maybe the coolest of these futuristic things, um, a 700-mile-per-hour vacuum tube. Th- this... This is a flight of fancy, isn't it? I, I don't think this is anywhere near um, reality. Ah, so you must be referring to uh, the Elon Musk Hyperloop. Yes. Um, talked about a few years ago, indeed. Um, so, yeah, so that is a sort of, it sounds like uh, such a crazy futuristic idea, but the idea of, of, of vacuum tubes or vacuum trains has actually been around for quite a long time. Um, Robert Goddard, who's sort of the father of, of space flight, uh, sort of thought about this even back in sort of the 1910s. So the idea has been around for a long time. And people have actually done some, some experiments and have tried to test this. And one example is um, the Swiss government funded a project um, back in the late 90s and mid-2000s um, that was sort of this idea of having vacuum underground trains that would zip you around from uh, Bern to, to Zurich or you know Los Angeles, Geneva in under 15 minutes. Um, the idea is that when you have a vacuum or a partial vacuum, um, you can get rid of the friction that it sort of slows you down. I'm sure if you've ever sort of stuck your hand out the window of a car, you kind of feel the air pushing against it, and that's when that, that kind of resistance um, is, is what slows you down. Um, if you could have a vacuum and, and get rid of all that air, you could travel a lot faster and without friction. Um, the, the trouble is that this technology probably sounds like it costs a lot of money, and it does. <laughs> and the Swiss Metro program, um, even though it, it seems like they had some sort of promising uh, early studies, um, was, was shut down because of cost. Um, and the Elon Musk plan for a Hyperloop, uh, which would be something that would shuttle you between San Francisco and Los Angeles very quickly, uh, using a, some, something like a vacuum train, um, you know, as you can imagine, will probably cost a lot of money. But the other thing is, I'm not sure I would want to be zipped around and sort of 
writing what is essentially a sounds to me like a, a roller coaster from Los Angeles to San Francisco, uh, even if it goes really fast, um, something like 700 miles an hour, which is sort of close to the speed of sound. And I think that would be, I don't know that that would be such a, such a pleasant experience. Yeah, it's it, there would be some. Uh, it'd be very cool. I'd I'd maybe like to go on it once, but uh, <laughs> you know maybe maybe I went on it and found out that it was a, a good ride. Um, the the payoff, Los Angeles to San Francisco in thirty minutes. I mean that's pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I'm not sure how long that journey takes now by by plane or by car. I think by car it's just sort of a full day. So. Um, but but the other thing is, I think you you also probably wouldn't get to enjoy the scenery so mm-hmm. much if yeah. you're yeah. if you're sealed up in a tube. Uh, so we just have a, a minute or two left with uh, with Bourdain. I want to depart from transportation. This this is just so cool. Wish we had a little more time to talk about this and uh, go over to. Uh, you wrote an article recently in Nature on autonomous robots. I wonder if you give me the one minute version. I did. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so the question is, can we program ethical decisions into robots? Um, this sounds like a sort of scary futuristic thing, but actually it's something that's already upon us um, because there, there are these sort of everyday ethical questions that autonomous robots or, or autonomous machines will have to answer. Um, for example, with autonomous cars, sort of figuring out you know, how, how to whether you should break to save a passenger versus increasing the risk of an accident. Or, uh, you know, a lot of governments and, and uh, firms have talked about using robots in hospice care or, or to, to care for the elderly. You know, how should you program the robot so that it will make the right decision when it comes to either deciding who to give the remote to or how to help a, a patient take their medicine? Um, and it's it's a, a very difficult question that sort of engineers as well as ethicists and philosophers are already having to think about. Um, and the trick will, will lie in how the engineering is done, whether we make robots that can sort of learn as much as possible on their own to sort of adjust uh, what their you know ethical bearings are, um, which will allow them to have a lot more flexibility and work in a lot more situations or if we need to program much more rigid rules into them and limit what they can learn uh, so that we guarantee that they never sort of come up with a set of rules that we don't know where they come from and uh, sort of make decisions that we don't understand. So, so that's sort of the gist of the, the story and sort of speaking to engineers who have different perspectives and how they're actually doing this. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, it's a brave new world. Um, we've been talking about future transportation with uh, Bordeng, who's a contributing author to the latest issue of The Agenda, that's a new magazine from Politico.com, and the uh, the issue is on transportation. Bordang, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, coming up we're, after break, we're going to be talking with Michael Grunwald, who uh, is a senior staff writer for Politico Magazine, editor-at-large of The Agenda. We'll talk about some transportation issues, including uh, Milwaukee's expensive new interchanges. We'll talk about roads versus public transit, new roads versus repairing old ones, the gas tax, potential new ways to fund transportation, and other topics. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the Californian newt. 
USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of coevolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, films, speakers and workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This summer, Congress finds itself once again driving full speed toward the highway cliff, the moment when our transportation law expires and Washington suddenly can't meet its promises to help states build highways, fix their bridges, and keep the nation's cars and trucks moving. That's Politico's introduction to the latest issue of their new magazine, The Agenda. And uh, in the first half of the program, we talked about uh, the future of transportation, uh, possible cool technology futures. Uh, today, we'll talk about some transportation issues in the second half with uh, Mike Grunwald, senior staff writer for Politico and uh, editor-at-large of The Agenda. Uh, Mike Grunwald, before joining Politico, uh, was a staff writer for the Boston Globe, a national staff writer for the Washington Post, and a senior national correspondent for Time magazine. He's won the George Polk Award for national reporting, the Worth Bingham Prize for investigative reporting, and many other journalism honors. He's author of The New Deal, The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era, also The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and Politics of Paradise. Lives in Miami Beach with his wife, Christina Dominguez, attorney, their children, Max and Lena, and their Boston Terriers, Candy and Cookie. Mike Grunwald, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. I always like hearing about the, the dogs. Yeah, I know. They, they, don't, they don't always make it on the radio. So. They, they don't. Candy and Cookie, so that's, that's great. Um, and I, it, it's, it's a new interconnected world. I, I just kind of assumed you're working for a political magazine, you'd be living in Washington, D.C., but you're in, you're in Florida. Yeah, don't don't tell my bosses, okay? okay. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, in today's world, you can you can be anywhere and, and be a writer, I suppose. Um, well, if you, if you can get from one place to another, which I guess is what we're talking is about. Is what we're right? talking about. That's that's right. By the way, how's the? I don't, you work from home. You don't deal with the commute. I my my commute is uh, is from my my bedroom to my home office. Yeah. But of course, many of us do. And I, you know, uh, I'm, I should, uh, full disclosure, I don't deal with any kind of a, a commuting problem. It's about a seven minute commute. Um, and, you know, we're very blessed that way. But many people are just stuck in traffic. I wonder if we could start on this issue with your story uh, in in the magazine, by the way, the, the agenda. New, I, this is a new magazine, right, from Politico? That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a site inside, inside Politico. And we're, we're looking at, uh, at, public policy. Uh, so yours is titled Overpasses, A Love Story. Uh, this is Milwaukee, and some people there think that uh, they're building these massive new billion-dollar interchanges for no good reason. That's, that's the view of some. Well, it's an interesting situation. As you mentioned, we have this 
right? The uh, the uh, the transportation bill, although of course it's called the highway bill in Washington, uh, it's uh, it's sort of on the agenda right now, and, um, and there's a lot of discussion about whether it should be extended for three months or three years or even six years. A lot of discussion of how to pay for it um, since the gas tax money is uh, has been dwindling over the last decade, um, but uh, but not a lot of discussion about really what this money is supposed to be it's supposed to be doing what it's supposed to achieve where it's going to be spent um and so i went to milwaukee where you know you in wisconsin you hear the same sort of things you hear in washington about how our infrastructure is falling apart there's not enough money um and in fact 71 percent of their roads and bridges of their roads are in poor mediocre conditions 14 percent of their bridges are falling apart um they they have uh, no light rail, no commuter rail, no high-speed rail. It's all been killed by the governor and the legislature. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a real problem of not enough money because they're spending $7 billion on those gigantic interchanges uh, right around Milwaukee, you know, those kind of uh, you know, those sort of spaghetti bowl-type uh concrete festivals where I mentioned in the story that says, you know, kind of places the tourists are always getting lost in the New Yorker, New Yorker cartoons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of these, we're talking about lane expansions at, at $250 million per mile. And so that's where the money's going. And then the question is, you know, what is that achieving versus, uh, versus what's being neglected? And particularly in Milwaukee, where they don't have a huge traffic problem, uh, there are some real questions about, uh, you know, about not just what's being achieved, but who it's being achieved for. So uh, the, the the gas tax um, is what just passed through to the states. Are there any strings attached from the federal government? The states can decide how they're going to spend that. Well, that's one of the, uh, the big questions about our federal transportation policy. You have these gigantic transportation bills that are known as the highway bills for good reason, because they spend about five times more on highways than they do on public transportation. Um, but essentially, that's right. Washington is just a pass-through. Um, as long as you know the money goes to the State Department of Transportation, and as long as they you know, they do the required traffic studies and, uh, you know, small business hiring standards um, and check whatever boxes says asked, um, they can essentially spend the money however they want. Um, and what they end up spending it on, it seems like, is highway expansions. Uh, there was more money spent over the last few years on expanding highway capacity than on actually fixing the road capacity that we have. And as I mentioned, vastly more money spent on on roads than on alternative transportation alternatives. In the meantime, as we're hearing alarming reports that uh, you know bridges, highways, etc., are getting older, infrastructure is getting older, and and the money's not going to uh, to repair it. Yeah, I mean, in uh, you know, in Wisconsin, sixty one percent of the the money is going to adding capacity versus 39% on fixing the capacity they already have. And, of course, when you add capacity, that's you're just adding to your maintenance backlog. And so there have been some states, and not just the kind of uh, you know states that you think of as progressive. I mean, California and Massachusetts have really moved towards the more fix-it-first um, type of position where they're spending more on maintenance and less on adding to their system. But so are North Dakota and Nebraska. And in fact, in uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, in 
President, I, I did write a book uh, about the uh, the Recovery Act, and President Obama's on the stimulus bill did in fact uh, push a kind of fix it first approach. Um, the the U.S. Senate also. Uh, tried to encourage a fix-it-first approach where at least 60% of state highway monies would go toward, towards fixing stuff as opposed to adding new stuff. Um, but that didn't make it through. And so states are still pretty much allowed to do whatever they want. You know, governors and state lawmakers, they like cutting ribbons. And uh, and what one thing I wrote about in Wisconsin, and this has also been a, na- a nationwide trend, is... Uh, you see these state departments of transportations come up with these gigantic estimates of how traffic is going to explode over the next couple of decades. So you need to add a couple extra lanes to these highways, even though over the last decade, uh, driver miles in the United States has been relatively flat. Um, and in fact, a federal judge actually slapped down this one highway expansion in Wisconsin that was justified by assuming a huge increase in, in traffic when in fact traffic had been decreasing over the last decade. So, uh, so there's a lot of pressure from the road builders and from state departments of transportation to, to keep building more and more and more. Um, but, uh, but then you've got to maintain that too. And in uh, Milwaukee, some are saying this is, a, you know, these, these interchanges are a, a solution in, in search of a problem. In other words, the, the commute isn't all that bad right now. Yeah, I was there for a few days, and I think I only had to tap on my brakes once. Um, they call rush hour over there rush minute. And I, I, I showed some statistics where I think it's the 30th largest metropolitan area that has, I think, the 66th worst traffic problem. And, you know, they do have a little bit of congestion on their main highways and, uh, you know, it can add five to seven minutes to the uh, to the average commute. But the Department of Transportation is always warning that if, uh, you know, we don't expand this and we don't expand that, we're going to turn into Chicago. And uh, and that just hasn't happened. Um, and uh, and again, you know, you take something like the zoo interchange, which is a one point seven billion dollar project they're building. Now, that's. 15 years of Wisconsin spending on public transportation for the entire state. So they're real trade-offs. Uh, and, you know, these, one another project I wrote about, the Marquette Interchange, which was only $850 million. At the time, it was the largest project in state history, but now it's only number four. Um, it did do a really good job of reducing accidents, uh, almost, uh, I think, 48% reduction in accidents. So that's not nothing. Um, but again, these are big ticket items, and uh, and when you spend all this money pouring concrete on uh, the Marquette, has 29 bridges they had to build in this one little little area. You know, those are uh, that's money you can't spend somewhere else. Hmm. I suppose it's construction jobs for a while. You, well, anyway, you, you, you know, you can dig a hole and fill it back up, and it'll be a construction job, right? Mm-hmm, right. You know, wherever they spend this money, presumably it's a uh, it's going to create jobs. Uh, the question is is where you're going to create them and what they're going to do. Um, and in Milwaukee, which is uh, by some measures the nation's most segregated metropolitan area, um, and it has some of the starkest uh, political as well as economic disparities between the suburbs and uh, and the cities, you find a lot of these projects that are kind of nice for suburban commuters. Um, at the same time that 
the city, not only transit is decaying, but so are the local roads. Um, and, uh, and you find that it's not that these transportation choices are necessarily creating the, the divisions or the disparities, but they certainly reinforce them. Now, what about uh, public transit? seems to get lost in here. And you wrote in your article that Governor Walker and legislature don't seem to smile upon public transit to have made a definite choice for roads. Is it just that simple that politics is, is on the side of roads? Well, that's, uh, that would certainly be the simple way of describing it, yeah. It's, um, and there are definitely, uh, you know, there are racial and political aspects to that. Um, in uh, you know, where there's a very strong conservative talk radio uh, presence in the Milwaukee area, which has trashed every every public transportation option as basically Marxism, communism, huge boondoggle, um, and uh, and of course, yeah, you know, these drive time guys. No, no, no offense, but some of them have a they, you know they like it when people are in their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been. Uh, you know, starting from at one point they they killed a freeway and uh, along the the lake in Milwaukee and they had a couple hundred million dollars to play with, so there was a big plan to do light rail that was killed by the legislature uh, with Scott Walker then in the legislature kind of leading the fight. Um, then there was a plan to do commuter rail and uh, Walker killed that when he when he became governor. Uh, he also the first thing he did as governor was kill a plan to do high-speed rail between uh, Milwaukee and Madison. And there was definitely a kind of political aspect where Walker ran against the cities. Um, you know, he portrayed the cities, you know, Milwaukee as the sort of welfare leeches um, looking for handouts, and uh, Madison, which is more of a college town than a kind of, uh, you know, gritty urban area, but Madison was the kind of pointy-headed liberal um, who... Uh, you know, sitting in their ivory towers. We don't want to give them money either. In uh, in many states, regional transit authorities are underfunded. In Wisconsin, Walker actually made them illegal. So, uh, And I know in, in Utah, you often hear about the really good regional transit work that's been done around Salt Lake City um, to its suburbs. Um, this, is, this is the sort of counterexample. Mm-hmm. And here in Utah, we do you have some good examples of public transit. We also have these debates, you know, that that some people still in Utah feel that we're putting too much into roads. Um, and but on the other side, people say they use the growth argument. I'm not sure if the figures are inflated, you know, in the Utah projects or not. Um, I wonder uh, if we talk a little bit about the gas tax. Um, one of the articles in this issue of the agenda is called the 18.4 cent failure. 60-year-old tax scheme that uh, that uh, some some are saying is is broken. What are you talking well, about? This that this is how we fund most of our uh, transportation. Certainly at the federal level, transportation funding, um, and uh, and it's you know it's been pretty good for a long time. When uh, when every year as the population is growing, so we're driving habits. For the last decade, driving has been flat. Um, and sort of uh, more ominously for the Highway Trust Fund, um, though really good for people's wallets and for carbon emissions, um, our cars are getting a lot more efficient. <laughs> so, so we're using less gas, which means we're paying less gas taxes, but that means there's less money to, uh, to fund all this stuff. Um, again, if, if we were just fix 
purchasing the stuff we had, that wouldn't be so much of a problem. There would be there would be enough money. Um, but if we're going to keep spending, you know, seven billion dollars just around Milwaukee um, for you know to to build these gigantic concrete and steel monuments, um, then somewhere we're going to have to come up with more money. And it's been been almost amusing watching uh, both in Madison and in in Washington these the kind of gymnastics that these politicians are going through because nobody wants to raise the gas tax. Um, so what are you going to do? And uh, in, uh, in in Wisconsin, Governor Walker just tried to put the whole thing on the state credit card. Um, he wanted to borrow $1.3 billion um, just for this budget. And uh, and his Republican legislature said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, you know, at that rate, we're going to spend 25 cents of every transportation dollar just servicing our debt. Um, and they ended up putting the brakes on some of these uh, – some of these gigantic projects, not because they necessarily thought they were, you know, exacerbating racial divisions or even that they necessarily thought they were a waste of money, um, but just that, you know, there's, there's only so much pie to go around and, uh, and nobody wants to raise taxes to expand the pie. Mm. If you just join us, we're talking about transportation issues with Mike Grunwald. He is a senior writer for Politico and uh, he's uh, editor of The Agenda. That's the new magazine from Politico.com, and the uh, issue for uh, this month is uh, on transportation. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation here, respond to some of the issues we're raising, uh, your comment or question is very welcome at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, I wonder... As we look forward, uh, what are some suggested solutions or, or shifts in, in policy? Um, what, one of the uh, articles um, is titled Freight Cities and Opportunity, and uh, the, the authors there, writing in the agenda, um, are talking about uh, fix it first and focus on freight as, as one solution. I guess two solutions. Yeah, well, certainly I think, um, you know, one thing that both of those solutions, I think, have in common is uh, is you want to start from the, just what is the point of our of our federal transportation funding, right? What are we trying to achieve? And at one point, like when they were building the interstate highways, one of the arguments was used was sort of national defense and national security. Um, but now it's essentially we're talking about the national economy, um, getting people to where they need to go, mobility, uh, getting people to the jobs, to their schools. Um, and making sure that freight can pass quickly through the country, um, you know, through our ports, through our airports, and then through our through our highways and, and freight rail. Um, so I think fix it first is is part. You know, that I think you hear a lot um, from everybody, but the uh, the road builders who have just bought you know eight hundred and fifty thousand um, dollar paving machines, like one of the guys I talked to. There's definitely a feeling that there needs to be a sense. You know, you hear so much about our bridges falling apart, you know, or, you know, so many roads that are, you know, full of potholes that before we start adding to the system, especially since it's found that when you add highway capacity, it doesn't usually reduce congestion. Um, there's definitely a sense that we need to do more, more maintenance, less fancy new projects, um, particularly fancy new highway projects that just create sprawl in rural areas. Um, 
But freight is a really important one. You know, one thing that uh, President Obama did in the stimulus bill, he created this new program called TIGER, um, which was a competitive grant program um, to essentially sort of bring us your innovative transportation projects that have a lot of economic and environmental value. And, uh, and we're going to just try to pick the best ones, even if they don't fall into a traditional silo. And one thing they found um, was that the, the projects that ranked the highest were these public-private partnerships to do freight rail expansions. Um, turns out, because the federal government hadn't really been helping with freight rail, a lot of private companies had not been building projects because, uh, you know, that really they thought needed some federal input. And so now you've seen, like, the best example is in Chicago, where they're essentially unscrambling their spaghetti bowl of different freight lines, um, where at one point you had actually, like, two major freight lines running into each other. It would be like if you had an intersection between two, two, uh, two interstate highways, you know, with, like, a traffic light or something. Um, so you're seeing a lot of money spent with the, the freight rail companies as well, as uh, the federal government are working together, um, that's a sort of new thing, and that seems to be, you know, it's reducing, it's reducing delays, and time is money. Um, it's also reducing delays for passenger trains that are using those same tracks. So um, that's an example of uh, certainly, but again, these are just questions of priorities, and it's sort of like, who are you going to move? Who do you want to help to get to work? And, uh and uh, who is who can you say, well, maybe you just have to wait a little bit until there's more money. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, much more to read. Uh, go to politico.com and look for The Agenda. That's their new magazine uh, treating issues and latest issues on transportation. Uh, a senior uh, staff writer for uh, Politico and uh, the editor of The Agenda is Mike Grunewald. He's been with us in this part of the program. Thanks so much. Well, thanks. Anytime. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Commentator Thad Box. Our ivy plant died. For 45 years, that plant was a significant part of our journey. It just showed up one morning after a party. We never knew who brought it, but it watched family and friends come and go through a front door that was never locked. It was there when our family gathered for graduation parties, marriage ceremonies, and Thanksgiving dinners where family and students from many countries ate around a table that stretched well into the living room. It was there when a child twisted a leg, crashed a bicycle, or came home happy and cold from the slopes. It witnessed CAPS's early shelter of domestic violent victims, meetings of the League of Women Voters, and formation of a chapter of the International Connoisseurs of Red and Green Chili. When I retired, we took it to New Mexico. It grew as our parents came to live with us. It was present when Dad died, when Mother went to live with Sis, and when Jenny's mother breathed her last breath. It helped us understand that life is a process where the old is replaced with the new, where new vigor emerges as the old weathers. It came with us when we returned to Cache Valley, now, old folks ourselves, we look for ways to fit into the community of our formative years. The ivy reminded us that viejos could be useful and contribute to the common good. For 18 years after we returned to Utah, it stayed healthy. Then it lost vigor and died. It's hard to lose a friend that welcomed our children's mates and our grandchildren into our world. 
one that listened without judgment to our failures and to our successes, one that knew secrets even we do not like to think about, one that reminded us that as we age, we weaken and cannot contribute much, or that we may depend on others for the simplest of things, or that the dying process cannot be stopped even by people with the best of intentions. We know not whether the person who gave it to us is still alive and well, sick and dying, or has been dead for many years. But that unknown person's gift has been with us for almost half a century. During good times and bad, we've had living testimony of your love and a healthy living reminder of why we exist. Thank you, our anonymous friend. This is Thad Box. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, films, speakers and workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. They started small, but boy, did they grow. We decided out of 11 Madison Park, we were going to sell some hot dogs. All of a sudden, 50 people lined up, 100 people lined up. The hot dog cart became this unbelievable thing in New York. I'm Kai Rizdahl, a conversation from the corner office. Really, it's a park in Manhattan with the CEO of Shake Shack. Next time on Marketplace from APN. Tied at 7. Also, beginning the week of August 10th, please join us for our new scheduling of Marketplace. Weeknights at 6.30, followed by Access Utah Monday through Thursday night. And Friday night, a new addition to our programming, Behind the Headlines at 7, here on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Coming up next is the Zesty Garden with your host Brian Earle, and the time now is 10 o'clock.